The presenting sponsor of Food Safety Matters is BioMiryu. As a leading provider of rapid, sensitive, and proven microbiological testing solutions, BioMiryu is committed to ensuring the quality and safety of your food products. Stay tuned for our interview with Dr. Vic Dutta, Head of Scientific Affairs, to learn how BioMiryu's testing solutions support the industry with the new regulatory framework for salmonella. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Food Safety Matters, the podcast for food safety professionals. I'm Stacey Atchison, publisher of Food Safety Magazine, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Adrian Bloom, editorial director of the magazine, and Bob Ferguson, president of Strategic Consulting. Welcome, gang. Howdy. Hi, Stacey. <laughs> so for today's interview, we're very pleased to bring you Adrian's interview with Sandra Eskin. Deputy Undersecretary for Food Safety at USDA's Food Safety and Inspection Service, FSIS. Now, while we would be pleased to have Sandra on at any time, we are especially happy to have her with us to discuss USDA's proposed regulatory framework moves to reduce salmonella linked to poultry and its notice of determination to declare salmonella as an adulterant in not-ready-to-eat breaded and stuffed chicken products. Yeah, so we've got a pretty packed interview with Sandra for you uh, with, you know, a lot of insight on the problem of salmonella and poultry and FSIS's plans for how this proposed regulatory framework to reduce salmonella illnesses from poultry will work. So stay tuned for that. Yeah, it's a good one. And timely. So we're, we always love it when we can pull that off. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I did make the... Uh, Bob was like, go ahead, invite her one time when we were on the podcast, (laughs) invite her now, which I kind of didn't take him up on in the moment, but luckily Adrian got that done. (laughs) I think I was shy. So, but anyway, she's a very nice gal. So she was real happy to join us. So it's all so great. All right. So we're going to be getting to that interview right after the news. Uh, And I'm I'm checking my list here for stuff that I need to share with y'all. And tis the season for early bird discounts to the Food Safety Summit. In case you haven't heard us crowing about it, Food Safety Magazine is officially the producer of the Food Safety Summit. And along with our incredible educational advisory board, we've been hard at work on next year's Food Safety Summit that will be held May 8th through the 11th in the year of our Lord, 2023. (laughs) I couldn't resist. All right. So the agenda at a glance is now up on the website, foodsafetysummit.com, so you can check out that that great lineup. And in celebration of the fact that this is the 25th anniversary of the summit, if you register before December 31st using the code SILVERBELLS25, all together, right? SILVERBELLS, no spaces. You'll get 25% off your registration. I know! That's a lot, right? 25%. Silver bells, 25. I'm not going to sing, Adam. Sorry, I'm not doing it. Adam was trying to orchestrate like a three-part <laughs> harmony with me and Adrian and Bob, and we're all a little too nervous. But, you know, sing it in your head. Silver bells. Uh-oh, there I did it. All right. So go to foodsafetysummit.com to save big time. Silver bells, 25, 25%. Now, is there any news? Yes, we do have news today for for our audience, Stacey. And the first piece of news we want to share with you is that FDA has released an outline for a new commodity-specific prevention strategy that's under development. And this one addresses the Cronobacter Sakazaki outbreak and recall for infant formula we've been seeing throughout the year. Now, this uh, outline also proposes that Cronobacter be elevated to a nationally notifiable disease. Now, if you listen to our bonus podcast episode on FDA's prevention strategies for bulb onions and imported wood ear and enoki mushrooms, which we did with Stephen Hughes from SIFSAN and Jennifer McIntyre from IFPA back in mid-October, you'll recall that Stephen talked about the upcoming release of these prevention materials for infant formula at the end of that interview. So this new prevention strategy is aimed at preventing chronobacter contamination of powdered infant formula and enhancing its safety, which the Senate mandated the FDA in June to do. 
FDA is also seeking stakeholder engagement to guide the finalization of the prevention strategy, which may seek to establish regular inspections of infant formula manufacturing facilities, as well as align and educate staff across CIFSAN and the Office of Regulatory Affairs to support regulatory oversight, and it may conduct a review and update of the infant formula compliance program. It may also update current FDA guidance for infant formula production and reevaluate current testing requirements to determine if improvements are appropriate and needed. So as I mentioned, another element of this prevention strategy outline is the proposal to elevate Cronobacter Sakazaki infection among infants to a nationally notifiable, notifiable disease, which would allow federal, state, and local partners to work together to identify and investigate instances of these illnesses. The strategy also seeks to conduct research to fill knowledge gaps in the scientific understanding on Cronobacter. Now, FDA plans to release an updated summary of the strategy in the coming weeks, and it will continue to be updated over time as more information is learned. This will be um, good to dig into, and we're looking forward to the research on Cronobacter. Cronobacter is not as um, prevalent as some of the other pathogens that we talk about, and there seems to be a lot we still need to learn about what happened in this particular case. And if I can say there's a few of the pieces that still don't quite fit. So it'll be interesting to get that data, find out more about the instance, particularly in, um, in infant formula and why this occurred the way it, it, it did. So it'd be good to get to the bottom of this, so to speak. So in prepping for today's recording, I reviewed the article that our digital editor, Bailey Henderson, posted for us on the web. And I really just want to say, this is a very thorough article. I, she <laughs> goes back and she includes links to all of the pertinent background, all of the guidance materials, everything. So everything that you could possibly want to know about this, there's going to be a link in the show notes. Go and get that, read the article, and access all the links. If, if this is something you want to learn more about, it's all there for you. Bailey, great job. Excellent. You can't get caught up quickly. I did the same thing. <laughs> it was like, you could just like, wow. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Great job to Bailey on that article and for providing all those resources uh, as usual and making sure everything is updated for our, for our audience and following these stories. So wait, Adrian, is this, is this uh, the, the next one, is this under our new heading called Hmm. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, next up in our review of the news, the EU's Court of Justice recently ruled to annul the European Commission's 2019 classification of titanium dioxide as a carcinogen. Now, titanium dioxide is often used to add white coloring to foods. Now, the court questioned the reliability of the study on which the EC's classification was based and decided that the classification of titanium dioxide as carcinogenic is no longer valid since it is not intrinsically cancer-causing. Now, this story caught our attention, and we decided to discuss it on the podcast because we know it caught your attention. The news article we published back in January about the EU banning titanium dioxide in food, which is set to take effect next year, was one of our most widely read stories. Now, this ban is based on the European Food Safety Authority classifying the substance as unsafe. Now, going back to the current issue, though, the EC's decision to classify titanium dioxide as a Category 2 carcinogen is mostly linked to its exposure by inhalation in powder form, as detailed in a 2016 French study. The Court of Justice's recent decision to annul the EC's classification was prompted by a lawsuit from titanium dioxide manufacturers, importers, suppliers, and users. The court further verified the results of that 2016 study and found that not all relevant factors in calculating the lung overload of titanium dioxide particles were taken into account, which led to the annulment of the classification of titanium dioxide as a carcinogen. Well, the EU hmm. needs to make up their mind, don't they? <laughs> hmm. Hmm. It would, yeah, it sounds like they sure do. But it took them a long time to get this far. So there's a 2016 study. There's a 2019 regulation. They're supposed to go into effect this summer, mm -hmm. but with a six-month transition, right. in which time they they reverse themselves. An annulment. I love that. An annulment. We're no longer married to titanium dioxide. We're no longer okay. married to this idea that it's carcinogenic. Right. Yeah. Oh, well. We thought you'd want to know. <laughs> 
It, it is complicated though, because Adrian said this, that it depends upon whether or not it's inhaled or how, it, how you're exposed to it. And it has to do with the size of the particles. In your lungs, it's carcinogenic. Other places, maybe not. So I'm sure that the toxicologists are working overtime trying to work through this one. Mm-hmm. Well, it's definitely an interesting story to follow regardless, especially with all the back and forth. So before we go, we have a few quick regulatory updates to share with you. Now, first, the FDA recently finished its first pre-market consultation for cell-based meat from a company called Upside Foods. FDA concluded that the firm's cultured poultry meats will be safe, and it has no further questions about the safety processes or conclusions reached by the firm. FDA expects cell-based meats to be ready for the U.S. market soon. Now, Upside Foods will still require a mark of inspection from USDA's Food Safety and Inspection Service before it can enter the market, and FDA will be coordinating with FSIS to ensure that the product is properly regulated and labeled. This comes from a 2019 agreement between FDA and FSIS, where FDA will oversee the cell collection, cell banks, cell growth, and differentiation for lab-grown meat, while FSIS will oversee post-harvest processing and labeling. I I love these stories. Um, I find this fascinating, but probably not for the obvious reason. Um, Stacy and I were talking about this on the phone the other day, where if you if you think about food safety and pathogens, bacteria get into food because of it, it was originally on the animals. But if there's never an animal in the first place, you can keep it out before it ever gets exposed to the food. And as you get more to these type of cell-based meat products, you're getting closer to a pharma-style production of food, where you're going to have food produced in a clean room or an aseptic room, similar to what pharmaceuticals use. And you won't have anything, I mean, unless there's a, a problem with the manufacturing, you won't have the kind of exposure to bacteria that you have now with real agricultural products. So it will, it will be interesting to see what this does to manufacturing. Yeah, I, we live in a very complicated world, don't we? <laughs> I mean, this is just, and as a vegetarian, I don't quite know what to do with this either, uh, because... <laughs> Uh, in some ways, it sort of alleviates some of the problems that I have, you know, and I know many t- do have uh, around humanitarian issues uh, and, and, and environmental issues caused by factory farming and all of that. Um, anyway, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. And it's going to be very interesting for me to see also just generally – so that's as a vegetarian. I think meat eaters are probably going to do – they're very skeptical. They'll be like, ah. This is it, real? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, I don't know. I'm I'm going to be watching this very um, very closely as a consumer just to see what what folks do with it. And from a food safety standpoint, Bob, you know, all your points are are very well taken. Uh, and I think you know, at the end of the day, it's all just food safety. So we know what we're looking for and where to look for it. So, uh, but maybe we'll learn new things. Maybe you know, unintended consequences will emerge because that's certainly a possibility. Mm-hmm. So anyway, very interesting story. All right. So a question for you. As a vegetarian and thinking just in terms of the animal welfare and environmental things that you mentioned, Mm -hmm. do you have ground poultry available here made by cultured meat? What's your thoughts? Is that in your refrigerator? I don't. I, 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 part of me doesn't immediately object to that, right? I think because my brain wants to say, well, the problems that I have with that are sort of resolved, right? Um, so I guess my answer would be maybe, you know, um, maybe. I guess I need more information, but but it's possible. It's possible to me that I could get around. Now, everybody out there who knows vegetarians know that that can be a very squishy term. So, right. you know, I basically, <laughs> we could get into all of that, what my rules around that are. Uh, but they do not include uh, chicken and, and beef and, and seafood, so... Um, so yeah, I'll be thinking about it and see, see where I get to with that. But it's an, it's now an open question. Interesting. Yeah. I think there's a lot of questions around this idea and, you know, I mean, aside from the obvious, you know, food safety aspects of it, but just, you know, as you mentioned, Stacey, how consumers will react, especially consumers who don't currently eat meat, but then, you know, 
the sustainability opportunities that are offered by this huge market challenges and all the ethical questions that you brought up. So yeah. it's definitely a really interesting segment to watch and yeah. not just for food safety reasons. So and you know. yeah, and what other ethical questions does it pose that exactly. I'm not aware of right now? I guess that's that's sort of what was in the back of my head that I didn't articulate a moment ago. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. I totally agree. So we'll continue to watch that story and obviously focus on uh, the the safety and quality of of this. Um, but we'll we'll continue to watch it um, overall as being such an interesting uh, topic in the food world. So we also want to let you know about some upcoming changes to FSIS's testing and sampling programs for E. coli and salmonella for beef. Now, starting in February of 2023, the agency will be expanding its routine verification testing for Shiga toxin-producing E. coli in raw beef products to include six additional STEC strains that are classified as adulterants. FSIS will begin testing for the STEC strains in ground beef samples collected at retail stores and in some imported raw beef products. And also starting from February, FSIS will replace its N60 excision sampling method for beef with a non-destructive surface sampling method that uses a cloth swab. This is one of those fascinating stories that starts out small but probably has a big impact. This really... um affects a small amount of the testing that the USDA does because it doesn't apply to the the basic cuts, the sirloin roast and things like that that they have as beef cuts. It applies to certain types of beef trimmings and the type of, someone in the beef industry is going to yell at me for this, but the type of bits and pieces of uh, beef that they make into ground beef. And there's names for all those, but um, it really applies to the sampling of those and the N60 also applies to sampling of those, but it doesn't apply to most beef right now. However, once the USDA switches over, people are probably going to want to align with that, and that will create a lot of difference in the industry. So that's one of these things. Again, it's a very small fraction of the test they do, the sampling they do, but it'll probably have a big impact. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good point, Bob. Thanks for pointing that out. And what about the expansion, Bob, of the uh, on the new STEX? Um that they're going to be doing sampling at retail now. Did you notice that in there? Yeah, yeah, I, I saw that. And I'm assuming that that's based upon the way that they're tested um, in production. Like we mentioned, the type of beef that they're testing are the ones that are going in more into ground beef and other types of uh, products, hot dogs and things like that, that it goes into. So I think they're going to do that at retail to follow up towards the end. I don't know that for sure. That's exactly why they decided that, but it makes sense to me that that's what they're looking at. So to do that. But they hadn't they hadn't uh, tested for those type of Aztecs before, except in these products, yeah. in part of these products, yeah. All right. Well, and so as we wrap up here, I just want to remind everybody that um, in case you missed it, uh, we wanted to let you know that our highly anticipated and <laughs> oft-mentioned webinar with FDA uh, on the newly released traceability rule. Uh, we, we had that live on November 29th, but that, that's now available on demand and you can still participate. So I also just have to say that it was really well done uh, and very, very well received. So as always, uh, but kind of especially great job, Adrian. <laughs> thanks, Stacey. And, you know, I think it was a very informative and, and well done webinar. And that's really thanks to the expertise of our speakers, which included from the FDA, uh, Frank Giannis, Deputy Commissioner for Food Policy and Response. We had Captain Carrie Irvin, who's the Deputy Director of SIFSAN's Office of Coordinated Outbreak Response and Evaluation. And we also had Katie Vierk, who's the Director of the Division of Public Health Informatics and Analytics, and also the uh, head of the rule writing team. And we were also privileged to have representatives from industry organizations join us, including Ed Tracy of the Produce Traceability Initiative and IFPA, as well as Angela Fernandez from GS1 US. So during the webinar, uh, we had the chance to hear from FDA about what's in the traceability rule, which falls under FSMA 204, and how the rule and the associated food traceability list were developed. The speakers also discussed the differences between the rule and the new era of smarter food safety's push for greater use of tech-enabled traceability, and also how they support each other, along with how companies can get started with compliance, and some tips on evaluating traceability technology options. So lots of stuff in there from the FDA. Uh, We also heard from Angela on how standards can be used to digitize the supply chain, while Ed explained how the Produce Traceability Initiative's efforts will evolve with the publication of this traceability rule. So 
Again, if you didn't get a chance to watch that webinar live, definitely make sure to check it out on demand under the events tab on our website. That's food-safety.com. Say it with me now. That's food-safety.com. We, we kind of got it there. All right. Yeah. I think we almost got it. So that's where you need to go so you can get up to speed with FDA's new traceability rule and watch that webinar. We're going to need to work on a three-part harmony, though. Maybe we We'll can get really... there. We'll get there. <laughs> we didn't practice with silver Adam's belts. just waving his hands around going, yeah, right. Can't you just do it? <laughs> okay. So as always, there are links in the show notes. And they're good. So you might want to access those articles. Like I said, Bailey does a great job. So you might want to access those uh, in-depth articles. Um, we also want to remind you to follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Just search for Food Safety Magazine. And uh, to take a deeper dive on all the great content that we offer, Uh-oh. visit our website. Oh, no, dear. <laughs> Here we go again. again. Food-safety.com. Oh, dear. Now, before we get to Adrienne's interview with Sandra Eskin, we're going to hear her discussion with Dr. Vic Dutta, Head of Scientific Affairs at BioMiriu, about how BioMiriu's testing solutions support the industry with the new regulatory framework for salmonella. And just for a little bit of background, Vic joined BioMiriu more than six years ago and previously worked as senior microbiologist at CDC in Atlanta. He holds doctorates yes, that's plural, in veterinary medicine and microbiology from North Carolina State University and has been working in food safety for more than 15 years. And now here's that discussion. Well, I am here today with Dr. Vic Dutta, the head of scientific affairs at BioMariu. And uh, we have some interesting things to talk about today. Um, we have things related to salmonella and uh, the proposed regulatory framework announced by USDA's Food Safety and Inspection Service, or FSIS, as we call them. Um, now, Vic, that proposed regulatory framework requires testing for incoming flocks for salmonella, among other requirements. Uh, can you share what Biomario is doing to support industry on this important initiative? Sure. Um, thank you, Adrian, for that question. And thank you for having me today. Um, really happy to be here. Um, theoretically, the idea makes sense, but as always, the devil is in the detail. And in this case, practicality is a huge area that needs to be addressed. To our knowledge, the jury is still out there on the effects of sampling, time to sample, the quality of data collected, uh, you know, whether it's quantification or serotypes. Um, however, having said that, despite all these variables from the testing standpoint, as test makers, or as I would like to call ourselves as widget makers, we are ready to respond to wherever the data or science takes us. Today, uh, almost all of our tests, whether they are qualitative, quantitative, and serotypes are compatible with the primary production samples. And like I said, we are ready to respond and looking for some additional guidance from the industry in terms of you know, how should we go about deploying these tests and create this uh, data set from the pre-harvest samples. Mm -hmm. That's great. Thanks for uh, clarifying that. Now, are there additional considerations that are needed for testing for salmonella on incoming live birds or flocks versus, um, for example, testing on finished food products? Yeah. So beside the quality of data, which is always a concern, and some of the variables that I mentioned, um, just shared with you, I think the jurisdiction is a big issue that needs to be addressed here. So as such, FSIS is, does not have a purview over um, pre-harvest samples. Uh, however, there's another division uh, of the USDA, AFIS to be specific, uh, called National Poultry Improvement Program, uh, popularly known as NPIP. They have been working in the arena of pre-harvest for, for many years now. And in fact, uh, from their experience, um, the, the whole idea of NPIP came into being because uh, there was a need to control certain problematic, and when, and when I say problematic, they were uh, these serotypes affected the poultry health that needed to be controlled. So over the years, NPIP um, labs, the NPIP program has done a great job in controlling serotypes. So their experience is really valuable here when we are trying to control for certain types of serotypes. So, so there's something to be learned there. And therefore, in, in an ideal world, we can learn from their experience, but also have the right structure to allow for innovation to address the salmonella control measure at the farm level. Mm -hmm. Okay. So 
In addition to looking at the amount of salmonella that's entering an establishment, can you explain how Biomeriu is equipped to support industry by taking on a more risk-based approach on certain salmonella serotypes that were you know, identified by FSIS as being major contributors to human illness? Sure. Um, our mission uh, is the guiding light here, which is to improve the global public health, right? So as test makers, we are taking a short-term view here and also a long-term view here. And the reason for that is how salmonella evolves, right? So we know that FSIS uh, indicated a while back that they would like to focus on key performance indicator serotypes, the salmonella enteritis, typomerium, and infantis. So th those are sort of touted as the serotypes of concern based on the clinical cases. So right there is like an opportunity for us to come in and develop a test for, uh, for these serotypes. Now, we already have a SE, which is salmonella enteritis, and ST, salmonella typhimurium PCR-based test in the marketplace. It is AOAC approved and ready to be used. Um, what we don't have today is the salmonella infantis, but we are uh, working on it feverishly to make sure that we can provide the SC, ST, and SI test um, for our cust uh, customers. And the idea being you are able to then, while, while you're screening for salmonella, right there within the next hour, you'll be able to then deploy this SCSTSI test and be able to you know, quickly determine whether you have the serotypes of concern. Now, that, that is a short-term view. We know that salmonella will evolve. Uh, these serotypes are of concern today, but tomorrow there'll be a Heidelberg, a Gona. I mean, there's 2,500 plus serotypes out there that have been identified. So, Salmonella will evolve, and so should we. So we are taking a long-term view here as well, uh, where uh, we are focusing on developing technologies that are uh, not going to be sort of serotype specific. So these, these technologies will allow you, um, you as in like whoever is looking for that information, to tell you what serotypes you have and how much of each one of those serotypes are there. Um, and, and the value here is that... Um, this information would allow us to then keep up with the salmonella evolution, give you a comprehensive view of what's going on with the samples, and therefore actually allow comprehensive risk-based mitigations because you can see in real time what serotypes are you dealing with. So these technologies are in uh, the works uh, in our shop right now. Our scientists are, again, feverishly working to get this completed. Um, and we hope to have uh, you know, tests, if not you know, multiple tests, launch uh, by the summer of next year. Well, that's great to hear. We'll definitely be looking forward to those uh, advances in you know, testing technology and capabilities from you. So my last question for you is, you know, how can a company like Biomeriu support the industry with its data to take a statistical approach to tackling process control and you know, bring confidence on making risk-based decisions? Yeah. Data is the new oil, right? As Americans, we are collecting 2.5 quintillion data points every day, and that includes our food safety company. So I don't think there's any dearth of data per se, right? So the issue comes in terms of what are we collecting, you know, how and how are we going to use it? Collecting the data is not a problem. We believe the opportunity lies in the organization analysis, interpretation, and then ultimately access to, uh, to data and preferably in real time. So with that, we are developing products that would allow for the better organization. In fact, we had a workshop yesterday where we were discussing the exact same topic. And one thing that became obvious is that just the connecting different data points within an organization is a challenge today because the way people collect data, you know, different formats and whatnot. So we are working on products that would just simply allow us to organize data better. So it becomes easily accessible, easily available. And so one of our products um, that we are we have commercialized already is ConnectUp that you know basically takes data points from all our systems and just ties it all together. Nothing fancy, you know, in principle, but it just ties it all together so we can see uh, in totality what is it that we are collecting. But then beyond that, um, we are also investing in platforms that would allow for streamlining of data analysis, um, like Biomerics, which has been out there to look at the whole genome sequencing data and also creating uh, platforms to centralize, evaluate, and allow for easy visu visualization of data. Uh, and the product in this case is, is EnviroMap. Um, but that's just the beginning, right? So, so just organizing things uh, in an in a easy format is the beginning of it. 
the the devil is in in, in in analyzing this data points and then ultimately using it to make you know improving our food safety system so that work is something we are driving towards but like i said step number one let's just organize everything and that's what we're working on right now mm-hmm. great well thank you so much Vic, for um sharing all this uh great exciting news with our audience about um you know upcoming uh you know technology developments and what to look for and um you know all this uh, data sharing we can expect so thank you so much for being uh, here with us today on the podcast thank you again okay and here we are it's time for adrian's interview with sandra eskin deputy undersecretary for food safety in this role she leads the office of food safety at the u.s department of agriculture overseeing the food safety and inspection service fsis which has regulatory oversight for ensuring that meat, poultry, and egg products are safe, wholesome, and accurately labeled. Prior to joining USDA, she was the project director for food safety at the Pew Charitable Trusts in Washington, D.C., a position she held since 2009. She also served from 2008 to 2009 as a deputy director of the Produce Safety Project, a Pew-funded initiative at Georgetown University. Before then, Sandra spent nearly 20 years as a public policy consultant to numerous consumer advocacy and public interest organizations, providing strategic and policy advice on a broad range of consumer protection issues, in particular food and drug safety, labeling, and advertising. She served as a member of multiple federal advisory committees related to consumer information on prescription drugs, meat and poultry safety, and foodborne illness surveillance. And here's that interview now. Well, I am here today with Sandra Eskin, the Deputy Undersecretary for Food Safety at the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Food Safety and Inspection Service. So, Sandra, thank you so much for being here today. We really appreciate you taking the time to be on the Food Safety Matters podcast with us. Well, I'm delighted to be here. And I will confess, this is my first ever podcast, so I'm very excited. Wow, we're so happy that you're on Food Safety Matters for your first ever podcast. So thank you. We're so happy to have you here. So today we have a lot to talk about and um, it is about a lot about salmonella. And so um, I want to start off by talking about we know about these new regulations that are under development to reduce salmonella illness linked to poultry products by 25%. And that's to match that healthy people 2030 target of no more than 11.5 salmonella infections per 100,000 consumers per year. I think that's a pretty encouraging step forward. So we're gonna get into the specifics of the proposed regulatory framework in a moment. But first, I wanted to ask, so what what would you say is USDA's scientific thinking for why illnesses from salmonella have not decreased over the past two decades, despite a 50% reduction in salmonella found in chicken samples over the past five years? That is the question that we are tackling, and we think we know some of the reasons why there's a discrepancy between contamination rates and illness rates. When we do our sampling and testing program, up until very recently, it's been prevalence. Is the sample contaminated or isn't it? We know, however, when you're dealing with illnesses, there are a number of factors, including two main issues. The amount of salmonella contamination itself can increase your risk of illness, right? If the product uh, sample has 10 organisms, it's different than 100 or even 1,000. The more bacteria, the greater the chance of getting illness. And the other thing we know is there are 2,500, 2,600 different serotypes of salmonella. As of right now, we know that 100 of them cause human illness. And of those 100, there are some, a subset, that are currently contaminating poultry products. So if we're able to identify the quantity and the specific serotypes of salmonella that are contaminating poultry products and that make people sick, we'd be much more effective in bringing down those illnesses. Okay, thanks. That definitely helps uh, helps uh, illuminate some of that. So 
Now, why do you think it's taken so long for USDA to change its approach to reducing salmonella illness from poultry after both the Healthy People 2020 and 2010 targets for this goal were missed? Well, I'll say two things. One thing clearly and that we're dealing with and also enables us to do what we're doing now is the technology used in testing has advanced markedly. So in order for us to be able to think about quantifying, in order for us to be able to identify serotypes, we need to have the technology and industry does. So that's been a big factor as to why we're going in the direction that we're going. Um, I, other, I also believe that, um, and this is, I wasn't here at the time, I was an outside advocate, but salmonella was just, in poultry, was just not a priority issue for past USDA leadership. I will say this, now with our initiative, we have the wholehearted support of the secretary and the FSIS leadership and staff, they are all in on this effort. That's fantastic. Well, thanks, Sandy, for um, explaining that. So, and I know that testing and technology advances in testing is going to be something that um, is going to be a big part of looking ahead with this regulatory framework. So let's talk about that proposed regulatory framework. And that was released on October 14th. Now that framework would require incoming poultry flocks to be tested for salmonella before entering a processing establishment. It would also require enhanced process control monitoring and FSIS verification, and it would implement legally enforceable final product standards that would declare salmonella to be an adulterant. It also addresses cross-cutting issues of salmonella testing and a phased rollout for small and very small processors and also establishes some uh, criteria for data sharing with FSIS. Now, the first component of this regulatory framework incentivizes pre-harvest interventions to reduce salmonella in incoming flocks and requires processors to demonstrate that their process will be able to effectively reduce salmonella in the final product. And it may require the mitigation of risk from particular serotypes. So my first question for you on this first component is, how would these proposed regulations incentivize pre-harvest interventions to reduce salmonella at the farm or transport levels if the ultimate responsibility for ensuring that salmonella standards are met falls on the processors? Well, the products that the processors make come from the birds that come from the farm. Ultimately, they're responsible for the product um, as far as that point. But let me back up a moment. We know that salmonella enters the establishment in and on birds. If the salmonella load coming into the establishment is lower, then the establishment, the processor, can deal with it more effectively. So use of pre-harvest interventions is important to processors. As I said, they've got to produce products from these birds. Now, many companies are testing for salmonella already. So this is something that's clearly doable. They, and, and in contracts, if it's a contract situation, they require certain things be done on the farm. We are not prescribing or dictating what measures need to be taken. Every operation has to figure out what works for them with the ultimate goal of bringing down the levels of contamination that enter the establishment. Okay, so kind of following along those lines then, so FSIS says that it doesn't intend to require industry to adopt specific pre-harvest interventions, but instead you'll be encouraging processors to work with suppliers and contractors to implement best practices. But how would you say that processors can ensure that they're implementing the most effective methods and controls and you know, at the most efficient cost to them to comply with the proposed regulations? Number one, we know that many, many companies that are already following best practices in terms of pre-harvest interventions. There are products, there are vaccines, which is a, a big topic of discussion. There's also biosecurity measures. All of these measures can bring down contamination and which combination to use depends very much on the operation itself. Many factors. So 
what industry always says is that food safety is not competitive. So that means there's a lot of sharing of research and knowledge among companies. We know that. And we know that there are many companies out there that are making pre-harvest products. They're very motivated to sell them to companies, but they need to demonstrate their effectiveness and their cost effectiveness. So the market is taking care of much of that. Um, and like I said, there are many, many companies that do this already. Mm -hmm. Okay. So now looking at component two of this proposed regulatory framework. So FSIS is proposing that establishments use a standardized statistical approach to process control. Now, if this requirement becomes part of the regulation, when would FSIS plan to roll out the standardized process control definitions and methods? And, you know, how would it go about educating processors on how to implement and verify this standardized control? So first, in terms of the governing regulations, right, we will include in those all of the essential information definitions and methods. Um, so that's number one. Number two, like every new regulatory approach that this agency has taken, we would give establishments plenty of time before requiring that they comply with the new requirements. Um, and then we also do a lot of technical assistance and webinars and provide other resources. So we will be there all along the way to make sure that these regulations are um, accurately, uh, comprehensively co uh, complied with. Mm -hmm. So you're going to be, would you say you're going to be focused on helping educate processors, um, you know, while these regulations or before the regulations are? Sure. Uh, okay. And they also have resources, legal, scientific, mm -hmm. that will help them implement whatever it is we wind up finalizing. Okay, good, good to hear. So now the third component of the framework looks at levels and serotypes of salmonella. Now there are three serotypes being considered for specific testing and mitigation. That's Typhimerium, Enteritidis, and Infantis. Those three are reported to cause around 33% of all salmonella illnesses from poultry consumption. So if these three serotypes are singled out as adulterants, rather than establishing a single product standard for salmonella in all raw poultry products, does this mean that the 67% of salmonella illnesses from other serotypes linked to poultry would not be legally enforceable according to final product standards or how would that work? The answer is no, but then I'll explain why I think it's no. Let me just note two things in, in your pre, just prior comment question. Those three serotypes are currently used by FSIS internally to measure their progress. Yes, I think we mentioned them in the framework, but we're not necessarily going to land on those. Mm -hmm. So that's number one. Number two, when we say a single standard, what that means is it would apply to all raw poultry products, right? So it could be a serotype-based standard, these three or five or seven serotypes, or it could be quantitative or it could be both. Now, um, certainly focusing on serotypes of current major public health impact makes sense because of our targeting of human illness, but we definitely want to put in place a, a, a policy that's flexible enough to allow us to update and and account for changes in serotypes over time. Bacteria are very smart. Their whole goal in life is to continue living, and they share lots of genetic material, and that genetic material does lots of things, including make the bacteria particularly virulent. So that that's the ultimate scientific goal to get a test that that's precise, that precise. But again, serotype, that's at least a place to start. Although we know that the testing in terms of rapid testing right now isn't available. And that gets us back to quantification. So we have a long view of what we want to do. And it's just a question of 
when we can have the technology. Regulation is not going to stop this evolution. This is the way nature, the nature of bacteria. So again, we want to hear input from everyone, from companies that are doing testing, from testing companies that are making testing for everyone. It is a challenge, no doubt, to put in place any sort of standard that is flexible, but we're going to do everything we can to figure out a way to do that. Okay, great. Thanks for that clarification. So another thing about component three of this regulatory framework is that it discusses how product that is found to be adulterated could be further processed to render it safe, or it could be sent to another FSIS inspected facility for further processing. So I am curious, what would oversight and verification of that process potentially look like? I can tell you exactly what it looks like because it's what we do right now for non STECs. So mm -hmm. if a product is positive, understanding in this context, STECs, that's a zero tolerance. We're not necessarily suggesting that for salmonella, but if the product tests positive, it can either be destroyed or it can be sent, as this happens now, under seal, so protected to an establishment that has a cooking process that's validated to destroy, in this case, uh, the STEX. FSIS inspection personnel at each establishment, whether it's the sending or the receiving, or both, oversees the shipping and the receiving of the product and ensures that the cooking establishment follows their validated cooking process to ensure that pathogens are destroyed. So whichever, whichever establishment you're talking about, we've got inspectors on the ground and there are processes and ways to validate what should be done is being done. Okay, that's really interesting. Thanks for giving us a look into what that process would potentially look like um, for, for, you know, salmonella contaminated um, meat that would possibly, you know, but further processing be rendered safe uh, for consumption. So, among the cross-cutting issues that are discussed in this proposed framework um, is the use of widely accessible, cost-effective, and rapid laboratory technology to determine salmonella contamination. Now, this would involve the transition to quantification-based testing rather than presence-based testing. So processors are going to be asked to test for salmonella at rehang. So my question is, what types of testing would be used for this process and how quickly could this testing be completed so that processing can be finalized and you know products can get out the door so um yes affordable and accurate and quick tests are absolutely essential to make this strategy work uh, we know there is quantification out there and companies using and companies are also using serotypes, but they're not as quick uh, in terms of results as we would like. But as we have seen in the past, if we require it, then the testing companies will build it. So we will work closely with them and try to get as much out there, as I said, uh, that's affordable and, and quick as we can. We, for example, just to give you an idea in terms of what type of sampling, we've been doing an exploratory sampling program to test birds at hot rehang. We collect the whole bird rinsates, they're rinsed in a bag, and analyze them for presence and absence of salmonella as well as enumeration. So this type of sampling for us, for example, is useful in understanding the levels of salmonella on the bird early in the process. and could be used. So that's one example. Um, and uh, we will, in putting together and finalizing this regulatory strategy, we'll talk about the verification that we do, what the expectations are for the companies. We heard a lot at the public meeting from some industry folks that they didn't think it was appropriate for us to be prescriptive in in uh, moving toward uh, you know, this uh, statistical process control. So that's something we need to think about and talk about with them. Again, the whole goal of the system together is to minimize what's coming in so that you can have the most amount of product that's safe going out. 
and everything in between matters, right? Mm-hmm. So again, um, we appreciate that right now we may not have the testing capacity or technology to do what we want to do, but I'm confident we will when companies are going to be responsible for complying with these requirements. Mm-hmm. And, you know, kind of speaking of, you know, if, if we require it, they, the testing companies will build it. it kind of leads into my next question. And we, we already alluded to this because, you know, you had said that there are currently no um, available uh, or at least affordable rapid tests to identify specific stereotypes. Uh, so, if FSIS would move to declare, you know, those three or five or however many serotypes that cause, you know, a specific percentage of all poultry-linked salmonella illnesses as adulterants, um, how do you think the testing or mitigation for these serotypes could be achieved in a timely manner until that testing technology is developed? My understanding, having met with many different testing companies, is they're on their way to that point. Mm. Um, whether you know, there's like I said, so much technology. Look at how much technology has developed in response to COVID. You have PCR tests. You have lots of different uh, methodologies. So um, again, based on what the status of things now, there are tests, but they just take a long time. Uh, you know, a whole genome sequencing can identify serotypes, but that is, again, not in real time. It mm-hmm. doesn't work that quickly. So I'd have to say, uh, let's talk again in six months or a year, but hopefully six months and see where the testing uh, is. But I'm, again, confident, not because I think it's going to happen, but confident because we've talked to companies. They're very much also all in on getting the tests we need that can really put this strategy in place and make it effective. Mm-hmm. Well, we hope so. And we'll definitely be keeping our eye on that. So now you, you uh, spoke about this briefly um, a couple minutes ago, but um, this virtual public hearing that FSIS held with stakeholders on the proposed framework uh, that was held on November 3rd. So based on the feedback from that hearing, um, can you share any more uh, details about the likely direction of the regulations and, you know, especially the, the kind of question marks in the proposed framework, um, such as the decision on serotypes or the requirement for processors to share their own sampling and testing data with FSIS at like rehang and post chill? Um, and then, you know, also based on the outcome of the hearing, do you think that that mid 2024 target for the finalization of the new rules is looking realistic at all? Okay, I'll start with the last question. Okay. And the answer is yes, we are definitely still targeting a final rule. It may be one comprehensive rule. It may be multiple parts, um, having it finalized sometime in mid-2024. So the meeting uh, was a big success from our perspective. There were more than 500 people listening, closer to 550 if you include the people that were just listening and not watching, Mm -hmm. um, and more than 20 commenters and the opportunity for the commenters and our FSIS panels to uh, interact, to talk was really helpful. Um, Right now we are still digesting, Adrian, everything that we heard, but among the things that we heard is there was a lot of concern about requiring flocks that flocks be tested right when they're entering the slaughterhouse, lots of logistical and scientific and other type of issues. There was clearly um, concerns, particularly by a, a, a smaller number of uh, commenters, but important, they were concerned about the impact of whatever we're going to require on smaller operations, and mm-hmm. we're very mindful of that for sure. And then a lot of discussion around the best way to set an enforceable final product standard. To be honest, none of these big takeaways were surprising, at least to me. What I was very glad to hear was um, some support from the major chicken trade association for a quantitative end product standard. Now, what they want us to do and what we're thinking of doing there may not be total alignment, But I thought that provided a a good path forward to sort of figure out what that standard should be. Again, we only heard uh, two minutes each and then some questioning from people. There's a lot more they want to say, and their first chance to say that is in written comments um, on the issues in the public hearing and 
public meeting and um, in the actual framework document and they have until uh, December 16th to submit no, submit those so I'm sure we're going to get a lot more food for thought when mm -hmm. we read through all of those and 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 see you know what what's up I, I do want to underscore one thing so we made a conscious decision to draft a document that was high level and to share it with stakeholders earlier than later. In many instances, the first time you ever hear about anything an agency like FSISS does is when we put out a proposed rule or an advance notice. But we just felt because we were contemplating what is really a significant shift, we thought we wanted to get this first round of input this way and I think we got a lot uh, so again I'm very happy with the participation level and the interest in the initiative mm -hmm. that's great to hear that you had so much uh, feedback and participation for that November 3rd meeting and you know so it sounds like you're really involved you really want to involve the stakeholders in this process and do it early and and um, you know just a follow-on question are you planning to at this time hold any more uh, public meetings about this before the rules are further developed or finalized that's a great question. Uh, so far, since the hearing was just a few days ago, the leadership, we've all got together and data dumped and shared our perspective. We haven't discussed that yet, and it's certainly not out of the question, um, but we also think that maybe having groups with different group meetings with different stakeholder groups might provide a further level of, you know, of involvement. We have the major trade association weigh in a lot which was great and we had one company provide comment but no other major chicken companies participated and I understand why mm -hmm. but I also think it is absolutely essential that we engage with them in other fora perhaps where they're more comfortable and we could have an extended conversation mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah that sounds like it could be a really good idea so um, I'd like to also hark back to um, kind of the first action that um, FSIS was taking on looking at uh, declaring salmonella as an adulterate, and that was uh, the proposed notice of determination to declare salmonella as an adulterant in specific products. And that was not ready to eat breaded and stuffed chicken products. And that was announced at the beginning of August. So. FSIS intends to publish that proposed notice for that by the end of the year. So, with that, with that specific, um, with that specific regulation, will this, will it be incorporated into this new proposed larger framework for reducing salmonella in poultry once it's finalized, or will that still be like its own standalone regulation? When we started looking at salmonella in poultry and looked at outbreak data and product data, you know, food attribution data, we really zeroed in on this product because it's raw, because it has been linked with so many outbreaks, and because despite efforts by um, companies to improve the labeling, people were still getting sick. FSIS is a public health regulatory agency. Our obligation is to do the best we can to ensure that products that make people sick aren't sold. So when we saw this particular product, we decided let's handle this one first. It is totally related because we're declaring salmonella as an adulterant in this product. Mm -hmm. In the broader uh, rule, comprehensive rule that we've uh, discussed in the framework, that's what the NPROC standard does, right? So we could, in our final rule or rules, continue on this product pathogen pairing. That's how you decide uh, about uh, whether something's an adulterant. Or we can do, as we spoke earlier, one standard let's just for purposes of discussion say quantitative standard for all raw poultry because whichever product a consumer eats if it has x amount of salmonella I, there's a great greater chance that you could get sick so again answering your question the stuffed ch raw chicken is related they're on separate tracks because as you noted right we're going to get the proposal out by the end of the year and comments but it clearly informs what we would be doing with any 
enforceable end product standard for the rest mm -hmm. of the raw poultry supply. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Thanks for the clarification on that. Now, kind of looking at this larger um, proposal for, for the framework. Now, what is your response to claims by, you know, some industry associations that USDA's shift in policy on salmonella and poultry is not based on scientific data or illness outbreaks and that the proposed regulations will be too problematic for industry to implement at facilities and in products? I reject that blanket statement. Of course, there is a lot of science out there. Maybe they don't like the science in the outbreak data that we're looking at, but we are basing our strategy on data, on science, and we continue, even at this point, to consider relevant information. We have a risk profile. We have two risk assessments that are underway. Our expert advisory committee is going to be meeting uh, the week of the 14th of November to answer a bunch of questions we asked about salmonella in poultry. As I have said repeatedly in response to industry's criticism of what we're proposing to do, you think we need science? You think we need data? Please share it with us. Please show us because the more and better science and data we have, the better the policy that we will put in place. Mm -hmm. And, you know, certainly if the testing and sharing that data, um, you know, as part of the, the framework, um, sharing, the, sharing the sampling and testing data with FSIS, that would be part of that, you know, target, right? Or, the, or that goal is to, you know, share the data so we can see what's going on and help us improve, you know, how we're targeting to reduce this, right? So absolutely, the greater transparency there is between industry and, you know, government, I think the better uh, we can all work together to achieve uh, this public health interest, right? So we're, of course, hoping for good results from the actions that will be taken based on these proposed regulations after they're finalized. And we would love to have you back on the podcast again as this continues to develop. Now, you yourself have stated salmonella in poultry is a complex problem with no single solution. Now, given the historical difficulty that we've seen in mitigating salmonella illnesses linked to poultry, I have to ask, does FSIS have a strategy for further fine-tuning its approach if the revised framework for tackling this problem, you know, doesn't initially yield the results or the data that it's targeting? Yes, we haven't focused all of our conversations on that yet, but we certainly will. And I wanna say two things um, in response. One, as I said earlier, we are doing our best and will continue to consult with our Office of General Counsel as far as what our options are legally for setting standards. We want to be able to update them and what options do we have. Rulemakings, full rulemakings, take a really long time. They're important because they're public and we want to keep that same transparency in whatever direction we go. So certainly we need to fine tune. Second, I think your question also goes to the issue of metrics, right? How will we know if we're getting the result we want? Mm -hmm. Of course, the main metric is are salmonella infections linked to poultry decreasing? Not surprisingly, it's going to take a while before we can see a, a trend, but it's something that obviously is top of mind. So. What we have to do, and that's a little longer term, in the shorter term, we need to track some surrogate measures that tell us that are related to illnesses, other factors that provide some insight onto the potential impact of our revised strategy. A lot of that kind of work has been going on for a number of years in many different regulatory agencies, certainly in food safety, both here and at FDA. So again, um, there's no question that we want to keep this, these, this framework dynamic, just like those bacteria are dynamic. Um, and we want to, uh, to be able to be nimble to respond if it's not working, tweaking it one way or another, keeping uh, stakeholders involved is critical. Um, so I, I, I think, I hope, 
that the way we have started this out by being as open as possible continues and also open and collaborative. Mm-hmm. Again, we've got a lot of smart people out there who care about this issue. There's technology, there's law, there's science, there's so many pieces to this, but I truly believe that if we collaborate, um, we can come up, we, we can succeed in this instance of bringing down these illnesses. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Sandy, yes, I want to thank you for um, being on the podcast and uh, for sharing all of your, your insights and information about the development of this proposed regulatory framework. And we're, of course, looking forward to seeing how that further develops and the finalization of rules uh, here in, you know, a year and a half or so, or two years. Um, and so uh, thank you again for sharing all of this great information with our audience. And um, we're looking forward to hopefully having you back to talk again about this in the future. And uh, thank you again. Thank you all very much. Thanks again to Sandra Eskin for joining us on the podcast today. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening. A very special thanks to our presenting sponsor, BioMiriu. To access BioMiriu's The Truth About True Quantification page, visit go.biomiriu.com slash knowyoursalmonella. You can also find the link in the show notes. Now, please don't hesitate. Send us your questions or suggestions to podcast at food-safety.com or post a note on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook. We're always glad to get your feedback. And we know that you want to make sure that new and bonus episodes magically appear in your podcast player. So all you have to do is click that follow or subscribe button in the player of your choice and presto, bingo. That's it. Just one click. It's all in the rest. And while you're there, Throw some stars our way by rating the podcast, especially if you enjoyed it. It only takes a moment, and it's good for everyone. That's it for us today. Our next regular episode will post on December 27th. In the meantime, take good care of yourselves and those around you. We'll talk to you then.